Shalom, and welcome to another episode of Israel Policy Pod, Israel Policy Forum's podcast. I'm Eli Koaz. And I'm Evan Gottesman. So it's been a very tumultuous week along the Israel-Gaza border. Yes, with a number of cross-border incidents, along with the Great March of Return, we're seeing a significant contrast between how things are going in the relatively chaotic and Hamas-run Gaza Strip versus the West Bank, which has been fairly quiet, and where the dominant faction is the Palestinian Authority, dominated by Fatah. One of the things that figures prominently in how the Palestinian Authority handles its affairs in the West Bank are the Palestinian Authority security forces. Someone who is particularly well acquainted with that subject is our guest today, Neri Zilber. He's an independent journalist and an adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute on Near East Policy. And Zilber, along with Raith Al-Omari, recently authored for the Washington Institute a study on the Palestinian Authority security forces called State with No Army, Army with No State. Neri, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Good to be with you. So, Neri, you just wrote a very interesting paper on uh, the Palestinian security forces. Can you start by just telling us a bit, a bit about that? Sure. Well, I think out of all the issues that we talk about that deal with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I think security arguably is the most important. Uh, it's kind of the fundamental prerequisite for everything that comes afterwards, whether it's economics, diplomatic progress, even the very basic idea of peace. Uh, now, having said all that, it's amazing, at least to me, before we started this project, how little is really known about a big component of the security dimension, which is the Palestinian Authority uh, and their security forces. So we kind of set out to to bridge this knowledge gap and to provide, I think, number one, very basic information uh, about what the what these forces are, what they're uh, how they're made up, what they actually do, both in terms of law and order. Uh, in the Palestinian Authority, as well as their their cooperation and coordination with, with Israel, which is also uh, not very well known. You mentioned just now the knowledge gap, and you mentioned it in your report as well. What do you think are the uh, most poorly understood aspects of the Palestinian Authority security forces? What do you think are some of the, maybe the biggest misconceptions about them? Well, I think on a very basic level, uh, oftentimes you get uh, a response from, you know, both the general public as well as even certain policymakers uh, to the question, well, wait, Palestinians have a security force? Uh, so I think really just the fundamental fact that they have a security force, um, 30,000 men under arms in the West Bank, not a small security force. Uh, so the fact that they exist and the fact that they're, they're functioning – um, what they actually do uh, in terms of uh, the evolution of the security force. So they're very different now than they were, say, 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, and definitely 20 years ago uh, in the 1990s under Yasser Arafat when the PA was created. So I think that's uh, a misconception in terms of their evolution and how, how far they've really come. You know, I'll get to the, to the bottom line first, a big... Uh, point that was emphasized in the report is that they're a lot more cohesive, professional, and effective than they've ever been before. And this has implications, I think, for security and stability uh, on the ground. So, Neri, when you talk about the Palestinian security force, who exactly are we talking about? So you have a effectively eight different services that make up the PASIF, 
the Palestinian Authority security forces. So everything from this quasi, not so much an army, but a more of a Guardia Civil European model of a, of a more than a police force. Um, they're called the National Security Forces. Then you have obviously a, a civil police, police functions, traffic, investigations. Uh, you have a presidential guard, which is really the elite force in the PA security forces. They deal with uh, VIP protection, including the president, uh, as well as some counterterror raids. Uh, you have something called the District Coordination Office, which is a separate body that deals with coordination with Israel. Uh, you have various intel services. Uh, number one, general intelligence, which is supposed to be this kind of external intel agency, uh, as well as preventive security, which is a internal uh, intel agency, really the the main counterterror arm. Uh, they're oftentimes referred to as the Hamas hunters. Uh, and finally, you have a smaller intel service, which is military intelligence, which deals with uh, kind of internal security within the PA security forces. So all told, uh, eight services. Um, I'm left one out, actually. There's civil defense, which deals with uh, emergency responses, first responders, obviously the fires in Israel uh, in recent years. So they'll send over firefighting crews. So all told, eight uh, services. And they they do a lot on the ground. And I should mention that these eight services are a far cry from what the situation was under Arafat uh, as recently as 10 10 plus years ago, at one point he, he might have even had 17 different services running around both uh, with the West Bank and Gaza overlapping. And really, this was this was a problem in terms of their cohesion and effectiveness and professionalism. You mentioned in the report that there is a breakoff point between the state of the old uh, PASIF, the Palestinian security forces under Yasser Arafat um, before and up to and including the second intifada and then sort of the PASIF after the Intifada and the loss of the Gaza Strip to the Hamas organization. Um, what do you think are the biggest differences between the old PASIF and the uh, present state of the Palestinian security forces? So, right, I think uh, the study, uh, even, or I should say, especially for, uh, for a think tank monograph, I think really tells a story. It tells a story, it tells a narrative of uh, the rise and creation of the PA security forces, uh, their real kind of fall, the deterioration of the security forces in the Second Intifada and then coming out of the Second Intifada, uh, the 2007 uh, Hamas coup in Gaza, where they lost control of, of this territory. And then what we've seen over the past decade, which is really the revival of the passive, this success story. Uh, now, the success has many, many fathers. Uh, I think, number one, uh, a lot can and probably should be said about Mahmoud Abbas, uh, Abu Mazen, the Palestinian president. Uh, it starts with him starts with him. It started with him. Uh, really a shift in policy, uh, especially in terms of where Arafat was prior to, prior to Abbas taking, taking up the presidency, um, a strict policy of nonviolence. So the passive is kind of the operational arm of a wider strategic concept uh, in terms of the Palestinian leadership. So that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, a real success story for U.S. Uh, diplomacy uh, in the Middle East and in terms of the peace process. Uh, so since about 2005, but really since 2007, you've had a U.S. three-star general and a small team sitting in Jerusalem training and advising the PA security forces. That's the U.S. security coordinator? Correct. Uh, so the, what's called the uh, U.S. security coordinator, uh, USSC, and this is a mission that's been, been in existence for, for over a decade, uh, really making a difference on the ground. 
um, despite the fact that uh, many U.S. taxpayers probably aren't aware of his existence, uh, maybe, maybe even many members of Congress aren't aware of his existence, but they are on the ground and they are uh, making a difference. Um, the Europeans are also involved primarily in terms of uh, training and advising and funding the, the uh, civil police. Um, so that's number two. And I think number three, really, uh, the Israeli security establishment. The Israeli security establishment um, gets the fact that these these security forces on the Palestinian side uh, are both needed uh, to uphold stability and security. Uh, they do more so Israel uh, can do less. Uh, but also in terms of um, the kind of overall political framework within which the PA uh, operates and exists. So... Talking about the professionalization of the PASIF um, and the inclusion of the current PASIF into a broader strategy of uh, nonviolence uh, under Mahmoud Abbas, how does that compare to the old PASIF? What did the old PASIF look like? How did it function? And how did it contrast with that current model that you just described? Well, uh, it's night and day different. So even in the 1990s, an interesting part of the study is, is looking back at the history of really Israeli-Palestinian security ties. So looking at the prism of, of, of this relationship through security. And what you saw in the 1990s, even very early on, was uh, instances of clashes, direct clashes, live fire between PA security forces and the IDF. And we go, uh, went back and interviewed various uh, Israeli security officials and Palestinian security officials, uh, among many others, for this report. And... Uh, and beginning after the creation of the PA, you had direct clashes. You had uh, passive kind of tearing off their uniforms uh, during demonstrations and joining joining the mob. Um, you know, you saw this in 1996. There were very lethal clashes uh, after a, a opening of a tunnel underneath the Temple Mound, the Haram al-Sharif. Uh, and then obviously it culminated in the Second Intifada that began in 2000. So you had really the passive actively engaged in armed clashes, if not terrorism, direct acts of terrorism, uh, beginning in the Second Intifada especially. Uh, so this obviously did not do much for their professionalism, nor did it do much for their relationship with Israel, uh, and Israel obviously had to respond. So in the Second Intifada, they were, uh, they were disarmed, they were decommissioned, a lot of them were arrested, uh, and, then, and then coming out of that, uh, kind of rehabilitating and rebuilding the security force under international auspices with a real uh, heavy U.S. involvement. When people talk about the current state of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the threat of moving toward a one-state reality, a permanent one-state reality, um, people often mention that the passive could disband or could turn against the Israelis. Are they talking about returning to a framework similar to what occurred in the 1990s, what you were just recounting? Well, they're not there yet. So a big part of, of the study, especially in the later sections, is how the overall political dynamic impacts the operational and really tactical effectiveness of this security force. You know, they don't operate in a vacuum. They are, they are impacted, whether uh, personally, institutionally, they are impacted by everything that goes on around. And in moments like this, where the peace process and, and the high diplomacy, uh, you know, to put it mildly, isn't, isn't very promising... Um, you know, it's a question whether they can remain as cohesive and as resilient as they actually have very much proven to be. So they don't operate in a vacuum, and, and that's one of the concerns uh, that we flagged uh, looking ahead. 
uh, at the policy challenges and, and really where, where we go in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the peace process, and how it will impact um, you know, not just the passive as an institution, but also stability on the ground. Because I'm, I'm sure like the incentive for the average Palestinian security force member is that they'll, they're doing their job and eventually will lead to, to statehood or to a better future. And when passive, when the people that are active in it see that there's been no tangible improvement, I mean, doesn't that really make it difficult for them to function? I mean, in a way... Uh, many Palestinians see them as people who are just helping the occupation and help, helping out Israel in many ways. Right. So that's a big a big challenge for the passive. Uh, personally, institutionally, I heard it uh, during the course of the interviews I conducted in the West Bank. Uh, you know, various slurs uh, were hurled at the passive. Um, by the way, not just by uh, people who you'd expect to to be angry at the passive. Hamas members, Hamas officials, critics of the PA, but even uh, Fatah party members who called uh, the security force uh, subcontractors for the occupation uh, you know that that was a, a nice uh, a, a nice derogatory term that that, that was used against them uh, there are a lot of worse ones and they view them as as collaborators subcontractors but really uh, upholding a situation that we have now where where the reality is pretty pretty cost free uh, for Israel in terms of upholding uh, security and, and quiet on the ground. Are there serious personal consequences when they're out of uniform for uh, members of the PASIF, um, for their families, because they're involved in this sort of uh, gray area between working for the Palestinian quasi-state and working uh, for Palestinian interests, but also being associated with Israeli interests with the state of Israel? Uh, I didn't come across any any personal consequences. Uh, I think, despite the public image of the PA and, and uh, Abbas being weak, uh, I think the reality on the ground is a bit more a bit more nuanced. Uh, they are they are pretty effective controlling the areas that that they uh, are tasked with controlling, uh, whether it's security in terms of security, whether it's in terms of uh, the politics. Uh, you know, there are obviously pockets of disaffection in various refugee camps and inner cities, inner cities of the Palestinian uh, Palestinian cities. But overall, they're doing uh, a pretty good job, uh, both in terms of upholding security and, and also protecting themselves, which I should mention is is uh, night and day different than the situation in Gaza uh, after the 2005 Israeli disengagement, where not only did the passive uh, find it very difficult to control the territory that, that it received from Israel, but they couldn't even protect themselves. So you had uh, very high-profile cases of senior Palestinian security officials being targeted by Hamas and other militants and, uh, and assassinated, oftentimes in broad daylight in the middle of the street in Gaza. Uh, so the situation now is, is very different. Uh, they, they have done a pretty good job of upholding law and order and, and reestablishing law and order from from where it was a decade ago, uh, and the question is whether whether they can can keep it up because it obviously is a good thing. Uh, by the way, not only for Israel but also for the average Palestinian. So, when we talk about security cooperation with Israel, how does that look on a day to day basis? Right. So, in terms of the knowledge gap, uh, a lot of people talk about security coordination between Israel and the PA, uh, but the report really gets into what this means, how it works, why it works, uh, and we broke it down into five operational components. Uh, I think number one 
uh, on a very basic level, dialogue and intel sharing between the security forces, between Israel and the PA. Uh, they're in constant contact, whether uh, security chiefs at the higher level, all the way down oftentimes to, uh, to the ground level, to the battalion level. So we're talking about with the IDF, with the Shin Bet, mm-hmm. uh, across, across the board. Right. Uh, you know, everyone has their various channels. Uh, different services approach different people. Uh, this is true for the Israeli side as well as the Palestinian, Palestinian side. Uh, so that's dialogue, intel sharing. Uh, number two, obviously, counterterror, shared interests, uh, shared concerns, uh, primarily Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, certain Fatah militants that are still running around in the West Bank. So... Uh, going after shared enemies, shall we say. Number three, you have a safe return of Israeli civilians that stray, uh, sometimes by accident, sometimes not, into PA-controlled areas of the West Bank. Now, this happened over 500 times last year. So over 500 Israelis were uh, taken in and then safely returned by the PA security forces Last year, so these are Israelis that traveled into areas A and B, correct. where they are forbidden to travel by Israeli law, and they were correct. They uh, were lost, or right, either lost or there for uh, for business reasons, or maybe more nefarious reasons. But the bottom line is that these were Israeli Jewish citizens uh, that were in uh, area A, Palestinian-controlled cities, and uh, and picked up and then returned safely by the passive uh, to Israel. Now we all obviously remember. Uh, what happened at the start of the Second Intifada in the fall of 2000, where two IDF reservists uh, took a wrong turn and were picked up by the PA security forces uh, in in Ramallah and then lynched in the streets. Now, this had a major psychological impact uh, at the time, and I think I would argue still uh, in terms of how Israel views views the Palestinians. Now, night and day different than than what it was back then. So really, the passive is, is saving lives, uh, almost on a daily basis. And we saw this just recently in Janine uh, in February, where two IDF soldiers in uniform, in a military jeep, uh, took... They used ways, I believe, and that... Right, they used ways. the shortest route. It doesn't necessarily distinguish between areas A and... Correct. And uh, they used a, a GPS you know, navigation app. Uh, they took a wrong turn. They were new to the area, so they recently deployed to the West Bank. And uh, that could have ended very differently than it did. And what you saw in Janine in February was passive officers actively holding off a mob uh, to extricate these Israeli soldiers from downtown Janine. So that's number three, the safe return of Israeli uh, civilians. Number four is is deconfliction between... uh, between IDF forces who sometimes feel the need to go in and make arrest operations in Palestinian-controlled areas, uh, usually at night. So they have a, an official deconfliction mechanism with a PASIF. Uh, so the PASIF and the IDF don't, don't clash by accident uh, on the streets. They stay away. That's also very useful for, for Israel and very different than, than was the case uh, you know, over a decade ago. So uh, so you have that. And then number five, and I argue perhaps the most important, is riot control. So the PA, uh, whether by commission, whether by omission, uh, stops demonstrations from coalescing and then 
reaching uh, what they call the seam zones between Israeli and Palestinian control in the West Bank, uh, highways, checkpoints, settlements. So the Passive has uh, very serious riot control units who you often see deployed to stop demonstrations from reaching these these sensitive areas. Um, and also you have a political decision that you've seen uh, in recent years by the PA not to, not to send its people to the streets uh, to take part in mass demonstrations, uh, also very different than Arafat's uh, methodology in the past. And that, uh, that helps uphold stability, it helps uh, save lives. And, uh, and the question to my mind is whether uh, security coordination writ large, but especially riot control and, and the lack of demonstrations in the West Bank, it will be sustainable given the current uh, political climate. So last summer, Mahmoud Abbas said that he was going to suspend security cooperation over the installation of metal uh, metal detectors around the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif complex. What does that mean? What does it mean when Palestinian Authority officials threaten to cut off security ties with Israel? So I think uh, this incident that you mentioned that happened last summer was was uh, a watershed uh, in terms of Abbas himself actually uh, suspending parts of security coordination with Israel. Now, we shouldn't overstate the fact. Uh, The report actually explains uh, what was suspended and what was not suspended uh, on the ground in practical terms. Coordination was upheld, despite the fact that Abbas uh, declared coordination suspended. So this really meant lack of dialogue at the very high levels, but really below that, they were still talking and they were still doing everything that I just mentioned. Uh, Important, but again, shouldn't be taken as a given. And I think it's a watershed, though, in terms of Abbas himself actually using coordination as as a political lever and really as an escape valve. To release to release pressure, uh, both in terms of his own political, uh, domestic political environment, uh, as well as the overall diplomacy, whether it's vis-a-vis Israel at the time, uh, and now the concern is vis-a-vis more his relationship with uh, with Washington and the Trump administration, what he decides to do uh, moving forward, um, you know, in terms of his own political calculus. What's your worst case scenario in the? future of Palestinian Authority security forces and their relationship with Israel, their relationship with the United States, and their day-to-day operational functions and capacity? My worst case uh, scenario that I can envision currently, uh, you know, things can obviously escalate and and get out of control, but right now, my worst case scenario is that uh, Abbas sees no real horizon, either in terms of his, uh, his relationship with the Netanyahu government either in terms of his relationship with the Trump administration, uh, and three, really, in terms of his own political dynamics inside, inside Palestine. And he, and he wants to kind of uh, curry favor with the population, reassert himself uh, on the international stage, and he really does uh, send his people to the streets. In other words, that the passive will let these demonstrations happen, uh, that they won't be stopped, and that this, I mean, there's a logic to it for Abbas, but that this will kind of help him politically. Uh, I think in terms of actual coordination on, let's say, going after Hamas and, and the, the reintroduction of violence, I don't see him going down that route. Uh, he really, on a both, I think, strategic and personal level, believes in the utility of nonviolence. 
he understands the cost that was extracted from the PA during the Second Intifada. I don't think they want to return to that. So anything really catastrophic would probably be down the line in like a post-Abbas situation after he's passed away or retired or... Right. Well, I think it depends how you define catastrophic. Uh, I think mass demonstrations in the West Bank, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen in over a decade, uh, would be would be a major event. I think it would be a major event politically. I think it would be a major event uh, in terms of the media on the ground, from experience. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the real fear is that whoever comes after Abbas isn't beholden to his, uh, I think, conception of the Palestinian national interest. Um, isn't beholden, by the way, to his own political position. So you can very easily sketch out a scenario where Abbas's successor needs to assert himself and reassert his own legitimacy uh, with his own people, and he kind of uses the security relationship with Israel as a as a card. So you've painted a picture of a very professionalized, almost quasi-military, paramilitary institution that's been created in the West Bank. There's been a lot of discussion on the Israeli right about annexing the West Bank. How difficult would it be for an Israeli government down the line wholly committed to annexation to dismantle the PASIF in its current state? Um, Because presumably um, the PASIF probably wouldn't cooperate, um, you know, once the door to a state of Palestine has been totally shut. Yeah, that's correct. I, I think the passive, and I heard this from Palestinian officials, uh, the passive as well as the PA aren't an end. They're a means to an end. And the end, obviously, is uh, the end of the occupation and, and statehood for for Palestinians. Now, if you close that door, then what is the passive there for? Uh, sure, you, you'd need police officers, you need uh, you know traffic wardens, they need to uphold security and stability, but uh, like 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 was the case before the uh, the creation of the PA in 1994, um, the IDF did that in the West Bank. Now you hear every so often uh, threats from Palestinian uh, activists and even some officials about uh, dissolving the PA and handing the keys back to Israel. And I think. Uh, we're not there. We're, we're not quite there yet. But the passive are part of this package, so they would have to be decommissioned, and and kind of meld back into civilian life again. Not an easy thing. Uh, not in terms of of having these uh, former military trained individuals on the streets, obviously younger men for the most part, but also in terms of uh, of Israel having to go in and and do the job. Uh, you hear from Israeli officials. We don't want to police uh, refugee camps. We don't want to run, uh, you know, the schools in Nablus. And I think it's a larger question of what happens to the PA if there's no political horizon. So Israel's security establishment, I think, I mean, they they often talk about the importance of the security cooperation, but it's something that really doesn't seem like the Israeli public have any understanding of. Do you think if that changed, if the Israeli public understood the the length that Palestinians were going like to in the West Bank to, to keep uh, to keep the West Bank quiet, their opinion of the Palestinians uh, would change? I think I think it would help. You know, with all with all due humility to uh, to my work and the the profile of a think tank study, uh, I think it could have an impact. 
in terms of explaining to to the public at large uh, what they actually do on the ground and the role they play in in upholding uh, security and stability. And I think the the reality on the ground is a lot more nuanced than perhaps the average Israeli or even the average American or whoever is looking on at this conflict quite understands. Now, it's interesting to me that the the fact that it's not really talked about, there's a reason for that. On the Palestinian side, it's quite unpopular as far as the, the issue of coordination really with Israel. So they don't like to talk about it and draw attention to it because it, it highlights their own uh, their own role. Being complicit in the exactly. occupation from the Palestinian. Exactly. Being subcontractors, subcontractors as we mentioned, of, of an endless occupation. Now, it's interesting, on the Israeli side, they're aware of this tension, which is oftentimes why you don't hear Israeli uh, security officials, especially, talking about it. Now, for the report, we went and, uh, you know, we talked to the right people and, and we got what we needed. But overall, you get a very you get a very kind of laconic and brief answer as far as yes, there is security coordination. It exists. It's ongoing. Uh, it's based on mutual interests. Um, I think I think if anything, this report uh, strives to do is is to explain how this works and to educate both the public and policymakers uh, as to its real value um, on the ground. So we talked about a knowledge gap, lack of public awareness about the Palestinian Authority and about the passive. But one instance where the PASIF and the Palestinian Authority have been more at the forefront, especially in the United States, is the discussion around the recent passage of the Taylor Force Act. And that comes from Taylor Force, the American student, was killed in a Palestinian terrorist attack while he was studying abroad in Israel a couple of years back. And that law um, restricts certain funds for the Palestinian Authority uh, based on payments made to... Um, the families of Palestinians who are in Israeli prisons for um, acts of terror, Palestinian terrorists. Um, And some of the opposition to this comes from, some of the opposition to the Taylor Force Act comes from a potential or perceived threat to U.S. support for the Palestinian Authority security forces. Um, What do you see as the impact of the Taylor Force Act on the passive? So that's a great question. I think a number of things. Number one, you see it in the actual language of the legislation as well as statements by U.S. government officials that they'll withhold certain funding to the PA, but they won't touch security. So in their minds, they, they, can, they can insulate security and really the work and functioning of the passive from the overall working of the PA. Uh, now, obviously, paying terrorist salaries uh, is unhelpful. It definitely is an incentive, uh, at least for some people, to go and commit these acts. Uh, I'll just say that the idea that you can insulate the passive as an institution, as well as security coordination that it does with Israel, from the overall functioning of the PA is not credible. The money is fungible. Well, the money is fungible, but also politically, how do you, how as as a PA security officer, do you explain to civil I servants? Mean, they're already viewed by many as quote unquote traitors or doing that's so on exactly, top of that. That's exactly it. How do you explain to the public, the Palestinian public, that uh, sorry, your teachers and your other civil servants aren't getting paid because we're cutting off funding to the PA until they change this certain policy, but we're going to keep funding the PA security forces to work with the Israelis? to uphold security. 
how do you how how does that work uh, politically? How does that work operationally? Just in terms of the functioning of the institution. So that's a main point as far as the recommendations of the report that uh, you know you want to threaten a cutoff in funds to the PA. You have to know what that might mean in terms of the passive and in terms of security. That's number one. Number two, it's it's interesting to me that uh, the the Taylor Force Act, while I think the motives, the motivations are 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 genuine, uh, highlights certain funds that the PA pays to terrorists or perhaps uh, terrorists' families. Uh, and you've seen numbers thrown around. I think the high end is 350 million, right, every year. That's paid to this to this fund. Uh, to my mind, it's interesting the fact that the PA, uh, at least till very recently, was spending a billion dollars a year on the PA security forces uh, to work with Israel to uphold security. So, in terms of the overall public image of the Palestinian Authority and what it does and, and does not do, uh, you can make an argument that the passive outweighs the uh, "quote unquote" terror terror financing. So, you know, it's obviously a, a complicated issue. But we need to actually put it in its proper context, which is the overall uh, work that the PA does on the ground. So, Neri, you mentioned that there hasn't been a massive scale demonstration in the West Bank in many years. um, But that's exactly what we're seeing right now along the Gaza-Israel border. So what accounts for that disparity? Right. I think the question of Gaza is really interesting. I mean, it's interesting in terms of, of the overall conflict, but also in terms of the history of the passive. Um, you know, Gaza is really viewed as the 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 biggest failure of the passive, right? Uh, Israel disengaged from Gaza in 2005, uh, pulled out soldiers, pulled out settlers, handed it to the PA uh, to ostensibly control and build up. Uh, two years later, the passive were routed in a matter of days by Hamas. And what we've been living with over the past decade, whether through uh, three wars and now the clashes on the Gaza-Israel border is a consequence of that loss of control by the passive uh, over a decade ago, right? And it's oftentimes pointed to as the 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 PA's uh, failure, both in the past, present, and and for many uh, pointed to in terms of the future as to what would happen maybe in the West Bank, right? Israel hands over territory to the PA to control, and then they'll lose it just like they lost Gaza to Hamas. Uh, one thing the report tries to tries to explain is the context for the fall of Gaza in 2007. Uh, number one, the, the 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 real professional the professional capability of the passive coming out of the Second Intifada was nowhere near what it is now. Right, I think I mentioned it before, but they couldn't even. Uh, protect themselves, let alone control the territory in those two years. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, I think the 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 timing of the Gaza disengagement coming so soon after really the decimation of this institution in the Second Intifada was uh, was unfortunate to say the least. Uh, timing in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is uh, is is almost tragic. Right. I think the the reality today, if you had the current passive in Gaza today uh, as a hypothetical, I think would be very different as far as its capacity to to counteract Hamas. Uh, and then I think the third and final thing is, you know, obviously we're living with the with the consequences of of the fall of Gaza. 
I would argue it's a legacy of Arafat's rule. Uh, what he what he decided to do in the Second Intifada, uh, how he ran his security forces when he was president. I think Abbas uh, has a different approach, has taken a different approach. So I think, uh, you know, again, hypothetically, it should be to to the PA's credit. Uh, that doesn't help us resolve the, the problem of Gaza right now uh, in terms of Hamas really being entrenched there and, and running it as, a, as their own proto-state uh, separate from the West Bank. And did the elections in 2006, when Hamas won, did that have a role in the Hamas takeover at all? Uh, it did. We we get into the the politics of the passive in terms of Hamas winning the the legislative elections in 2006. Uh, you know, really, it was a financial issue more than anything. You know, the capacity of the passive wasn't great coming out of the Second Intifada anyway. On top of that, you heap on the fact that the international community couldn't really uh, fund or train. Uh, a security force that at least nominally was controlled by the Hamas-run interior ministry. So again, the tragedy of timing uh, is uh, is endless, really, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, the situation now on the ground, obviously, is very different. You know, the West Bank is run by the PA. Uh, it's funded, trained, advised by the international community. Everything is kosher. Uh, in Gaza, the situation is quite different, and you see Israel relating to to Gaza very differently. It seems that Abbas is trying to kind of strangle off Gaza in a way, as uh, recently, both with like measures about cutting off economic uh, aid to Gaza, and I don't know, there was a recent, uh, was it a real assassination attempt on his life, or was it? From the information I heard, it was more a signal. Uh, it was a signal to the PA in Fatah, uh, the interesting thing about that that bombing, as you mentioned, in Gaza a few weeks ago, there was a, a PA delegation uh, going to open a desalination plant in northern Gaza. Uh, in the convoy was the Palestinian Prime Minister, Rami Hamdallah, as well as uh, the General Intelligence Chief and a close Abbas advisor, Majid Faraj, a very important and influ- influential player uh, politically and also security-wise. And uh, from what I've heard, it, it was more a, a signal, although the, the bomb was serious. So I think it's clear that this reconciliation between Hamas and Fatah, I mean, this round of reconciliation is, is a no-go. Um, but the question is, is it advantageous to say that Abbas is looking for maybe another round of conflict in which Israel could destroy Hamas and kind of put the Palestinian Authority back back in charge? Is that way too much of, of a stretch? Or is that something that Abbas maybe thinks he can he can m- make the conditions in Gaza so bad and eventually Israel will have to deal with it and maybe out of that could come PA presence restored in Gaza? Look, I think a lot of people uh, believe that to be true, that Abbas would love it if Israel solved his Hamas and Gaza problem. Uh, and a lot of his actions uh, in recent years have uh, have kind of fed that speculation. Uh, I will say that the only the only security force that can really disarm the Hamas military wing would probably be the IDF. Uh, it would probably necessitate a reoccupation of Gaza on the ground. By real, the IDF, or could it be something that by the IDF? Okay. Uh, you know, the PA security forces are many things, but they can't. Uh, they can't be expected to be reinserted into Gaza and then start fighting uh, Hamas's Qassam brigades on the ground in, in Gaza. I think that's a, that's a bridge too far. 
but the between you know a full IDF uh, reconquest of Gaza and then the reality that we have now, I think uh, politically, economically, uh, humanitarian-wise in Gaza, I think there's a lot that can be done, and I think the PA, especially for for international policymakers as well as major elements of the of the Israeli establishment, they would love Abbas and the PA to be doing more. To be doing more in terms of uh, governance in Gaza, as well as the introdu- reintroduction of, of at least some security forces, to the extent possible, uh, into Gaza to regain a foothold there. Now, Abbas uh, views Gaza as a losing proposition. Uh, there are a lot of risks for him in terms of trying to go back in there. Uh, we saw the bombing a few weeks ago. That was uh, a message, uh, arguably, from certain elements within Hamas. Uh, trying to scuttle any kind of re reinsertion of PA control. But uh, there could be a lot of upside, both in terms of the PA's political standing and uh, and just really delivering to the Palestinian people. So Gaza is a complicated issue, and we're seeing the, the consequences of this complexity uh, exploding in Israel's face on the on the border region last couple of days. So exactly, we're in the midst of what is called by uh, Hamas and the Palestinians the Great March of Return, which is a six-week planned protest, the first day of which was on this past Friday, um, and 15 Palestinians uh, were killed and hundreds of others were injured. Um, what can we expect in these six we- weeks? How bad will this get? And what does it mean for the West Bank-Gaza relationship? What does it mean for Israel? And uh, what does it mean for the entire region? Well, I think there are a lot of, uh, a lot of factors at play. I think, number one, the, the reality on the ground will get worse. Uh, we're almost gearing up for this kind of perfect storm come May. Uh, the Gaza border marchers are only one part of it. Uh, you're going to have the U.S. Embassy being moved to Jerusalem. You have Israel's 70th Independence Day celebrations. You have Nakba Day on the Palestinian side to commemorate 70th anniversary and, of Israel. And that's supposed to be the last day of the right. six-week march. Right. So, you know, Gaza border region will be uh, will be hot, uh, but then you have to look at how the West Bank responds. Uh, and then finally, I mean, you have the start of Ramadan, which is normally a period of heightened tensions uh, in the region. So you're gearing up for this perfect storm uh, come May, uh, the question really, to my mind, uh, and this is related to the report, is how the PA and really how the passive uh, respond to all these political pressures. Uh, does the PA get caught up in this kind of uh, escalatory tensions, escalatory dynamic, uh, or will Abbas and the passive actually do what they have been doing uh, in recent years, which is try to contain the unrest? Uh, so I think that's an open question, and, and there's... There's uh, tensions involved in both approaches. Uh, so that's, I think, number one as far as the reality on the ground. Uh, number two, for Israel, it, it needs to figure out how to, I think, operationally contain the clashes on the Gaza border region without causing uh, undue loss of life, which kind of feeds this, uh, this cycle of, uh, of escalation. Uh, you know, the IDF has been preparing for these marches for a number of weeks now. I think what we saw last Friday was was the first gambit uh, with accusations of maybe lax uh, rules of engagement and use of live fire. 
I don't necessarily believe that to be true, but the IDF should be very aware of the fact that uh, you know casualties on the on the Gazan side are not helpful, right? In order to contain the the overall impact of these marches. Uh, now, obviously, Hamas has an, has an interest in in raising tensions, reasserting itself, and the Gaza issue on the international agenda. Uh, which brings us to maybe the U.S. role in all this, which is that the U.S. needs to be very careful. And by the U.S., we mean the Trump administration. They need to be very careful not to feed this escalation dynamic. Uh, you know, obviously, the, they're moving the embassy to Jerusalem. I think that's a done deal. But how how you manage that that photo op, essentially, uh, what you provide to the Palestinians and Mahmoud Abbas, uh, for them to kind of keep upholding coordination and stability in the West Bank uh, is important. Uh, you know, the war of words that we've seen between really President Trump and many of his senior advisors and Mahmoud Abbas is unhelpful, to say the least. Uh, so I think the U.S. will have a major role in how this plays out. Uh, and then I think really fundamentally how you at least try to begin to think about solving the issue of Gaza uh, or at least ameliorating the hardships in there uh, so that something maybe more positive comes out of, uh, you know, the clashes on the border and what we've really seen over the past decade uh, under Hamas rule. And there are certain ideas that have been uh, floated around, uh, but I think in all... It's a whole other conversation, too. Yeah, right. It's a whole other conversation. If we had another four hours, uh, we could try to figure it out. But but really, Gaza is 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 a tough nut to crack. Uh, but I think the PA, in any scenario, uh, should and likely will have an important role to play. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Neri, for answering a lot of tough questions. We appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Uh, it's always great to be talking about these issues, uh, if not resolving these issues. You can read Neri Zilber and Raith Alomari's study on the Palestinian Authority Security Forces, State with No Army, Army with No State, online. We've attached a link below. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more about Israel Policy Forum's work online at www.israelpolicyforum.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Telegram.